Welcome to Intelligent Edge Yoga, yoga conversations for smart, compassionate practice with Catherine Ann Flynn. I'm Catherine. Hi, podcasters. I'm recording this talk on the medicine of subtraction on a day where I need to take my own advice. You know how there are days where you prepare yourself, it's going to be a difficult day, and you feel prepared. And then one thing goes wrong and you think, it's okay, I do the yoga for this reason and you can handle it and digest it. But then things keep going wrong and you think, for heaven's sakes, <laughs> I don't need to do this much yoga in a day. It's one of those days. And it's a busy season. I'm recording this close to Christmas, a time where we are consistently adding things to our lives. We are adding events, social time with friends and family, and literal stuff the things to give other people, and the things they may give us. We add decor and special foods. We add reindeer antlers to our animals and bribe them into posing for photos with liver treats. Or maybe that's just happening in my house. Anyway, after Christmas comes and goes, I am hosting a second annual Medicine of Subtraction class, a gentle and restorative yoga class to help my community process the year that was. There will be so many offerings around the new year centered on the rebirth and renewal of the calendar. But Ayurveda is all about digestion. We want to look at where we've come from before we go somewhere else. Hence the name of the class and today's podcast. Before we add anything, let's consider space making. Let's process and take a few things. But first, let's consider the benefits of the medicine of subtraction. My hope is that if you are a student or teacher of yoga, you are a lover of quiet, that you have a comfortable relationship with quiet. In the upcoming podcast on the importance of music in a practice, I discuss the reasons yogis may want to practice to music. Even though I think a musical class can be the right balm for the soul, we do tend to hew toward what we are accustomed to unless encouraged toward other options. Silence is healing and beneficial. One study reported that for many people, just two minutes of silence a day can be more relaxing and helpful than listening to relaxing music. Another study found that increasing periods of silence helps the brain generate new brain cells that can positively support mental health. Both of these are linked in today's show notes if you would like to go read further. In Sanskrit, we call sensory deprivation pratyahara. By that, we mean closing of the eyes, silence for the ears, speechlessness for the voice. Taking away stimulation helps us digest that which we've taken in. We tend to think of digestion as a dietary nutritional process, but think of the information we take in all the time. I appreciate the irony that I am talking about the benefits of silence. Silence between responses has been so helpful for me in conversation. I used to be the kind of person who was always waiting my turn, planning the words, getting excited about how phenomenal my anecdote might be. It wasn't active listening at all. It was active audience seeking. In expanding the silent spaces uh, between what I say and what I hear from the person I'm chatting with and getting quiet, I've been more present because I'm responding to what is happening 
rather than forcing my preference and perspective by anticipating the future where I get to speak again. I also have come to appreciate that other people are naturally more quiet than I am and do not struggle with pregnant pauses in conversation. They may need some spaciousness to be able to come forward with their words, and I want to hear them. This is the right season, winter, to cultivate silence. It's the right time for digestion because we should honor in ourselves what we see in nature. That's a central tenet of Ayurveda. Winter is a quiet, digestive time for nature. The leaves have fallen and are resting under the snow. A slow beginning to the digestion process that leads into the more active digestion of spring. It's a reflective time, not an active time. We tend to think of reduction and minimalism as a, it's a path to happiness when we think of it in terms of stuff. Being a fan of stuff, it was difficult for me when I graduated my first teacher training. I called my teacher in an existential crisis, telling her that I was struggling to reconcile my love of things with my uh, new commitment to yoga. It seemed to me that the accumulation of stuff was antithetical to a yogic life. Years before Marie Kondo wrote her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, Mona said to me, we live in the material plane, right? You have to be here. There are some things you need while you're here. Why not be a master of the material? You do show great skill with stuff. I am not one to rush out and accumulate things. I prefer to wait for things to come to me in a way. I rarely go out with the intention of certainly buying a particular item. And I've always loved recommendations, research, and buying for longevity, which was its own challenge when Harvey, our baby, was on his way because I could go down the rabbit hole of internet reviews as to the superior baby product. And capitalism has really figured out how to capitalize on parents' fears. But long before him... The pots and pans I have now are the ones I used my birthday money to purchase when I was 18, because as I told my mother, I only wanted to have to buy pots and pans once in my life, and so far it's looking like we're on track. Stuff needs to be accumulated in time. The side table we currently have near the couch does not bring me any joy, uh, which is Marie Kondo's measure for a possession's worth, but I will not throw it out, because we need a table there. And wanton discarding and replacing is terrible for the planet and ignorant of our privilege to gain and discard at will. Just check out a link in the show notes on the environmental impact of the clothing industry. I struggle more with things of sentimental value. My mother and I take forever to put up the Christmas tree when we do it together because we like to take out a bauble, discuss who gave it to us, ponder what they may be up to, have a really good cry if they're no longer with us, and ultimately place it on the tree. My father tolerates this for all of five minutes before he leaves to go get a drink. This practice, it's sustainable because it's annual at most. But Ayurveda has a concept that is a core component of understanding our constitutions and formulating a wellness plan so that we don't necessarily get caught up in emotional overwhelm. 
Guna is a quality or a characteristic. You may recognize it from the philosophical concept of the Mahagunas, Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. But in this instance, we're referring to the qualities of embodiment. The Gunas of Ayurveda are roughly divided into two categories, Brimana, which means building or nourishing, and Langana, or lightening and reducing. The idea is that you should apply the appropriate quality to cultivate balance. So if I'm too hot, I should lean into cool practices. If I'm dry, I will add more oil for smoothness of skin, digestion, and mental processing. Uh, and aside, Ayurveda's answer is almost always put oil on it. So we only lighten and reduce if in doing so we are ultimately nourished and resilient as a result. We reduce if reduction brings us toward balance. Sometimes the things we need to part with are not things. We often do not realize how taxing a relationship or a job is until we have taken it away. Think of how often you've been in a heated or poignant conversation only to think of the best response later on. But then even further down the road with a little time, you grow to appreciate that perhaps you were unprepared for the conversation. It wasn't the right time. Or you're happy you didn't say that perfect response because it would have stoked the flames of a fiery exchange and made the situation worse. When we are in something really deep, perspective is difficult uh, to cultivate a comprehensive one like standing at the bottom of a well and trying to understand what the well may look like from the outside. Denial often plays a powerful role in getting us through these times. We may not be ready to let go of the relationship, or we may be unable to let go of the job until we have another one lined up. This is where we need to subtract the things we can. Relationships that lead us away from the qualities we want to embody, like healthfulness and compassion— or behaviors that seem like they're helpful in the short term, such as binge drinking coffee. When I left marketing and tumbled into going full-time yoga, I realized that I had so mindlessly been consuming coffee to keep up with the ridiculous hours I was working that I was drinking seven to eight cups of coffee a day. It was what felt like the only tiny joy in a time of my life where I had little to no support at home, and no friends in what was still a new city for me. I was overly depleted in what was nourishing, and I was crazy addicted to coffee. These are the times so many of us drop our practice to make space for busyness. But it's difficult times and relationships that need space around them to suss out if it is a season or if through our presence, we are sustaining an unsupportive space. We often cannot see how unsupportive a practice is until we've parted ways with it. Four years later, I am happy to have the opposite challenge. Through meaningful work and connection making, I know so many good people that to maintain a semblance of balance, I have to schedule coffee dates weeks out. It's a wonderful place to be in now. And not a day goes by where I regret the decisions to break with the life that I was building. For the friends who have parted ways with me because I was not good for them, maybe they'll eventually cycle back around. 
it may not happen in this lifetime, but if people are committed to change and evolution, they may just change and evolve. I'm so pleased that a few friendships of mine have rekindled once we grew into being better for one another. For those that don't, we cannot linger on what we did poorly in the past. We must practice compassion for ourselves and others and allow that information to inform how we act now. How we want to show up in the world is strongly influenced by how well we are honing our skillfulness of perception and action. Various forms of yoga are premised on the need to sharpen our senses and grow skillful in what we choose to take in with them. This is actually a central component to the Bhagavad Gita, which is a portion of the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. And it tells the story of a prince in the midst of a familial war over the rights of accession. The prince, Arjuna, feels so limited in his choices that they do not feel like choices at all. So despondent, he receives divine help from Krishna, who is an avatar of the god Vishnu, to help him navigate these actions. In chapter 2, verse 58, Krishna says to Arjuna, Even as a tortoise draws in its limbs, the wise can draw in their senses at will. Aspirants abstain from sense pleasures, but they still crave for them. These cravings all disappear when they see the highest goal. Even of those who tread the path, the stormy senses can sweep off the mind. They live in wisdom who subdue their senses and keep their minds ever absorbed in me. We can think of Krishna's call to action or purposeful inaction, if you will, as a call to dwell in love. Vishnu is uh, of the Hindu triumvirate of gods, the sustainer. And what is sustaining? Love. And it is through our practices that we process our experiences reconcile our emotional reactions, and come back to dwelling in a place of love. It's why our practice helps us come home to ourselves, come home to our truths. Caring for ourselves through quietude is a healthful pursuit. It's necessary for us to digest what has happened so that we do not reflect on the past as a place of greater happiness or sorrow than it was. This present moment clarity also helps us move forward in a healthful way. It does not mean that dwelling in love means accepting all situations as they are. I love what Marianne Williamson has to say about forgiveness. If we choose not to forgive someone, she says, remember that the jailer also has to stay with the jailed. In not forgiving, we punish ourselves as well by policing the person we want to punish. No, by dwelling in equanimity of emotion and dwelling in love, we may choose to subtract someone or a situation from our lives, but we then find it so much easier to subtract the anger, sadness, or resentment that being in proximity to them brought. There's a story that helps us reconcile this simultaneous you know, oneness of creation the indivisibility of you and I, as well as the need for not always being together. It's the story of a student, his teacher, and an elephant. The student had listened to the teacher espouse the unity of creation, that there was no separateness between all things. And so like the phrase namaste, we recognize 
that the light in one another is a part of the same light. The student was dwelling in a peaceful, sattvic place when an elephant charged toward them up the path. The student thought, there is God, a representative of God, and I am God too. So what does God have to fear of God? And thus he stood up and went toward the elephant, even as the elephant's handler atop the elephant said to move out of the way, he's out of control. The student, confident in their oneness, continued forward and was trampled by the elephant, tossed out of the way. A little bruised and shaken, he dusted himself off and stood up. The teacher inquired as to his wellness, and he admitted perplexedly, Why would God hurt me when we are both the elephant and myself? The teacher smiled and said, The elephant's handler is God too. Why did you not heed his warning to get out of the way, since the nature of the elephant was to continue forward? People tell us all the time how they are going to be in particular circumstances. We often choose not to listen. They may be different for others, and they may be different down the road, but often when we get quiet with ourselves, we can grow to appreciate that some things are not in our control. What we do have power over is our willingness to be in proximity to someone whose qualities are harmful to us. I feel like this particular topic could go on and on. There are so many ideas and concepts we need to retire. The idea that we are separate from one another, the stories we tell ourselves that aren't true about ourselves or other people, the cultural habits that pit us against one another and favor some people's rights over others. I'll end with a couple of critical questions for your wellness in the coming year. Reach back to January 2017. What were your expectations for the year? What did you think would happen? Were you surprised by what did happen? Identify what you did this year that digested well. What worked? What truly nourished you? And what did you do this year that depleted you or that you would not repeat? How will you cultivate a rhythm of taking in, processing, and then moving forward? All big questions worthy of your meditation, your thoughts, and your journaling. Perhaps what comes out of that may form some of the intentions and the goals that you're going to set for yourself in 2018. That's all for now for this week. If you're in Ottawa on December 29th, check my website at www.intelligentedge.yoga for details on the class inspired by this talk and other upcoming workshops and dates. Other than that, namaste for now, yogis. Yogis.